everyone. Welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast, where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. This is your host, Ashwini. In this episode, I talk to Professor Paul Tambaya, President of the International Society of Infectious Diseases and Senior Consultant of Infectious Diseases at the National University Hospital. In our conversation, we discuss his long and active involvement in civil society, how he started his advocacy work, his take on the healthcare system, and how medical students, like you and I, can involve themselves in advocacy, be it now or in the future. To start off, why did you choose medicine as a career and then further decide to specialize in infectious diseases? Okay, so um, my dad uh, was an endocrinologist. Um, he spent many years in the public sector before moving into private practice. And he was my role model, as with many kids, you know, you look up to your dad. Um, although I do remember that some of my memories of Christmas were of him going in to see patients in diabetic ketoacidosis, which was very uh, unpleasant for us, but good for the patient. Um, and so um, that was part of the reason why I went into medicine. But I was also interested in science. And I still remember that, and this will date me, um, when I was in my A-levels, I was toying between uh, crystallography, which most of you have no idea what it is, but it involves uh, structural biology and chemistry and physics. And, um, and I remember my dad had invited a guest who was from the Royal College of Physicians. And, you know, you always tell, ask your, friend, your host uh, kids what you want to be when you grow up. So I told him I'd like to be either a doctor or a crystallographer. And he said, well, that's very simple. He said, if you like people, you should be a doctor. If you uh, like crystals, you should be a crystallographer. So, so that kind of helped me make up my mind. Uh, question about infectious diseases. Well, um, my first posting as a MO was in cardiology. And um, this was in NUH. And the head of the department at the time was Professor Morris Chu, who I think now runs uh, Farrah Park Hospital. And uh, he was relatively impressed by my performance as an MO. He said, would you like to do cardiology as a career? And I said to him, no, there are too few diagnoses. I mean, you've either got heart failure, you've got arrhythmia, you've got an AMI. And his uh, registrar managed managed to chip in and say, well, we managed to miss a few of them. And then Morris turned around and said, well, you should do infectious diseases then. He said, there are thousands of diagnoses. And he was trying to be funny, but uh, when I went home and thought about it, he was right. You know, you could have a viral infection, you could have a fungal infection, you could even have a non-infectious cause of a fever of unknown origin. Uh, And that kind of um, tied in with uh, my interest in medicine was the detective uh, part of it, trying to determine the cause of a disease, the etiology of an outbreak, uh, and to stop it. And so I went into infectious diseases, partly for a really bad reason, uh, but I really enjoyed uh, doing it because there's a huge spectrum of disease that you see. There's, um, there's a couple of chronic diseases like HIV or osteomyelitis, uh, but most of the time it's acute diseases. People either get better or they die. And uh, that kind of suits my personality. You were one of the founding members of Marua and are also part of Action for AIDS Singapore. Why did you choose to be actively involved in social activism and when did this start? It actually began with Action for AIDS. I returned from Singapore in 1999 and I wanted to maintain a small HIV practice like I did in training. But I discovered very quickly that there were huge issues uh, involving uh, stigma, discrimination, access to medications, some of which unfortunately still persist to this day. 
So I got involved with Action for AIDS. I've been involved in um, many committees and efforts, both inside and outside the organization. Uh, basically, just to try to treat AIDS like a normal disease with standard evidence-based therapy for subsidized patients, normal handling of patients, etc. It's taken years, uh, and in the last year, we finally managed to get HIV drugs on the standard drug list. This is a huge achievement by AFA and all the activists who have been campaigning for this for more than 20 years. Uh, before this, it was crazy. I mean, you could identify a patient with pneumocystis in the hospital, diagnose him with HIV, treat him with some of the world's best treatment in the ICU. But after if he was discharged, if he was not poor enough for Medifine, he would likely not be able to afford his HIV drugs, so he would default on his treatment. He would come in again a few months later with another opportunistic infection and again receive world-class treatment on a subsidized basis, and then the cycle would repeat itself. Fortunately, with the drugs now on the standard drug list, hopefully this will not happen anymore. But I think this shows the power of advocacy and the futility of trying to treat medical conditions on, on their own in isolation without dealing with the underlying problem. And in this case, the underlying problem for the opportunistic infection is not just the immunosuppression, but it's also the discrimination that accompanied the uh, inability to reverse this immunosuppression, uh, which has finally been addressed. So MAROA was the Singapore Working Group for the ASEAN Human Rights Mechanism and it was actually Singapore's first, probably Singapore's first um, official human rights organisation. And I was very happy to meet like-minded Singaporeans who cared about basic rights and dignity. In fact, uh, that's what MAROA means in Malay, it means dignity. Your parents have also been actively involved in the social issues. So how did their work inspire you? So my parents shared most of their values, in particular recognizing the value of every individual regardless of their social status or physical disability. However, they had very different approaches to civil society. Uh, my father was someone who worked very much in the background, quietly getting things done for his patients. Um, he brought the first podiatrist to Singapore public hospitals and also helped start the Society of Diabetes Educators. Um, he really believed in patient-centered care, which is a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. But uh, Professor Tai Xiong once quipped that patients are supposed to be the center of healthcare in Singapore, but in reality, they are the center of multiple PowerPoint presentations. I tried to explain this to a young SAF MO once by telling a story that was told to me by Dr. Kang Mei Ling from SGH. She went to the Mayo Clinic for her HMDP, and she was amazed that when a patient came to the Mayo Clinic for a consultation and needed multiple referrals to different specialties, the patient stays in the room and the different specialists who are rostered to do consults in the outpatient came to see the patient. So this is in huge contrast to in Singapore and many other places where you see one specialist, then you get referred to another specialist, you have to register at a different clinic, you've got to wait to be seen, uh, and this can potentially take several days. So uh, my father was aware of the Mayo Clinic system and when he started the diabetes clinic in Tan Tok Seng, he arranged for the nurse educator and podiatrist to run clinics in parallel to the diabetes clinic. So the patient just made one visit and saw everybody on the same day in the same corridor. And that was 25 years ago. When I asked one of the endocrine doctors about this, he said, unfortunately, those days are long over. Patients now have to just prepare to spend days waiting for reviews by the different departments and often end up missing visits as it's hard to arrange for transport and all these other things. Now my mum on the other hand is not shy about speaking up about causes that she feels are important. She was one of the early leaders in AWA, the Asian Women's Welfare Association, and has been a tireless advocate for the disabled. Uh, she used to write to the newspapers and was not hesitant about lobbying ministers. 
An example I've cited before is the issue of COE for ambulances. Now, my dad had organized a donation from Mount Elizabeth Hospital of a therapy van for kids with disabilities who are studying in mainstream schools. Uh, they had retrofitted, AY had retrofitted the ambulance for physiotherapy and were all set to go when they were told they needed to pay more than $20,000 for a COE. And she felt that this was crazy. And, you know, she's an advocate. She's not just a volunteer. So instead of raising the funds to pay the COE, she wrote into the newspapers and actually approached the minister uh, to get him to change the policy. And he responded very promptly. So the policy was changed. So now all ambulances run by VWOs are exempt from COE. And I think I learned that from my mom. That's the difference between advocacy and, and just doing fundraising. You don't just plug a hole in the system. You address the systemic issues which cause the problem in the first place. What are the major issues in society that you feel strongly for? And has this changed over the years? Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, it began with HIV and AIDS. And this is because uh, I came back from my postgraduate training in the U.S. in 1999. And, um, you know, the U.S., uh, this is before Obamacare, they had 40 million people who are uninsured. So in general, the healthcare system in Singapore seemed to take care of people a lot better than, than the United States. Um, but over the years, um, I've realized that there are significant gaps in our, in our healthcare system, uh, not just for communicable disease, but uh, even more so for non-communicable disease. But, you know, you can't do everything. Do you think that behavioral and social sciences should be taught in the curriculum of medical education? How can it be done? And are there any barriers in doing so? I definitely believe that uh, behavioral and social sciences should be taught in the uh, in medical school, but I really don't think it should be done as a as a module or as a course or you know a compulsory online module that everyone has to go through. What needs to be done is it needs to be integrated uh, in the curriculum. You you can't just have a, a bunch of philosophers who are well-meaning, well-experienced, um, well-trained, uh, trying to teach medical students in a lecture theatre. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, we have 300 students and we get 40 people showing up. I think that if this thing has to be taught, it has to be taught integrated in the curriculum. Uh, and so I, I have long felt that it needs to be done uh, in the medicine and surgery postings, which are the core postings for the uh, undergraduate medical students. And, you know, this is not impossible. When I was a medical student, um, during our medicine posting, which at that time was 12 weeks, um, we had, um, we had a series of case presentations that we had to do um, for our clinical groups. And one of the case presentations for every posting was what they called a social medicine posting. So we did it together with one of the faculty in what was at that time called the Department of Social Medicine and Public Health. And it involved a home visit. And it helped us have a much more holistic understanding of the patient. The trouble is that to get clinical tutors uh, who are trained in dealing with the ethical issues is very challenging. So it's even more challenging for the, the other social and uh, behavioral sciences. Short answer, yes, I think uh, social and behavioral sciences need to be taught. Uh, but the long answer is it has to be integrated in the core curriculum, medicine and surgery. And um, it cannot be seen in isolation. Congratulations on being appointed as the President-elect of the International Society of Infectious Diseases. With the current COVID-19 pandemic, what is global health to you? And what is the most significant challenge that it brings to the table? Well, I think long before the, um, the current pandemic, uh, we knew that global health involves the health of individuals all across the world. 
And uh, the case has been made that, you know, no one is safe anywhere until everyone is safe everywhere. And it's kind of a cliche, but it's uh, it was brought home very much so with, uh, with the pandemic. And, uh, and I think, you know, global health involves learning from everybody, uh, especially for medical students. Uh, and in fact, one of the things I enjoyed was uh, attending international medical student activities where you get to see medical students from across the world and how some things are so similar and yet other things are so different. Are we providing enough focus about global health in our medical education? I think this is very hard to do because the curriculum is so crowded. And to be brutally honest, you know, not every uh, graduate is going to be practicing global health. So, so the way I see global health is you have to understand the implications of global health. You have to understand the implications of global supply chains. Um, and you have to understand the implications of uh, transglobal infectious diseases as well. So, but at the same time, you have to provide the opportunity, just like the anesthesia posting gives a first taste for somebody who's going to become a world-famous anesthetist. So at the same time, we have to have enough uh, in the global health curriculum uh, to, to stimulate people who are going to go on to a career in global health. And, and you know, Singapore uh, has got a unique position. So Singapore's geographical position uh, means that we cannot run away from global health. But like I said, not everyone is going to go into a career in global health, but it's something that we need to be aware of. What is your take on the current medical education in terms of advocacy? For a long time, uh, advocacy was considered a bad word in uh, education in Singapore, especially in tertiary education, uh, and it dates back to 1975-76, and uh, I think those of you who are interested can go and look back on the history of uh, NUSU and, and you will know what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, advocacy is something which uh, has to have a life of its own, and, and you can't teach it, you can't sort of uh, uh, constrain it really within the education system. But I think it's got to be something that students feel strongly about. Um, in the past, students used to primarily feel strongly about school fees. So that was the issue that, that got most students uh, uh, agitated. You know, it, it's good for them to get involved with NHS and PHS. And you, you see, uh, you know, in a, in a wealthy country like Singapore, why people with hypertension are not getting treated or people with diabetes are suboptimally managed and, and trying to understand the social determinants of health. I think these are, these are good things for students to be exposed to, but they need to take one step beyond that. Um, unfortunately, the reality is they're not going to do that in the university, and this is where they, they make use of the training that they get at the university, you know, learning how to uh, collect data, how to analyze data, social and behavioral sciences, understanding the context, the framing, the, uh, the, the background of the individuals, and then going outside the university. There's so many NGOs in Singapore now who are, who are doing advocacy work for, for different groups. And so the students can find something that they feel passionately about. You know, like I started out with HIV and AIDS and Action for AIDS. And, uh, and it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever really uh, catches your attention or, or you feel passionately about, you should get involved with. Are we really training our students to move towards the direction of more civic engagement and away from, let's say, the books? residency and ranks? Well, I don't think we are, and I don't think we need to. Because frankly, uh, medical students are very creative and they are resourceful. So um, there's what is known as the hidden curriculum. You know, there's what you teach students in school, but in reality, students learn a lot uh, outside of uh, the main curriculum. 
In fact, uh, um, the person who had the most influence on me, the two people who had the most influence on me in medical school in terms of my later career, number one was my debate coach, who was uh, Professor Richard McDonough from the philosophy department in FASS, because he taught me about Socratic reasoning. That kind of approach, asking questions, um, has been invaluable in research. And the second person was actually my Playhouse uh, director, uh, it was Dr. Christopher Lian, who's now a geriatrician in CGH. And, um, and we never won until the fin- M5 year. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, he helped us get into the character of the, uh, the individual that we were playing. Uh, uh, and that, I think, is the most useful skill that anybody can learn in medicine. Being able to put yourself in the skin of another person, um, which you can only learn uh, through Playhouse. <laughs> you can't learn that in a, in a course or, or in a, through an exam or something like that. So, so I think um, the short answer is that um, we don't have to train the medical students. If they want to learn, they will learn. Uh, and they will find a way to, to learn about it. You have mentioned in one of your interviews that freedom of speech is to think of alternative ways to solve problems in society. With regards to public health in Singapore, how do we push our students and young medical professionals to adopt new ideas to solve societal issues? Someone has said that there's a Southeast Asian approach to um, human rights and freedom of speech. And, and the approach is, uh, is a softly, softly um, sort of pushing the boundaries kind of approach rather than a, a, a in-your-face approach. And I'm not sure that I agree with that because, you know, it's really hard to to sort of stereotype uh, uh, one culture or one particular approach. Um, but it does seem to work, uh, trying to push the boundaries uh, bit by bit, uh, what is known in Singapore as the so-called OB markers. Uh, and you'll find that um, there, are, there are certain kind of principles. If you, uh, if you have solid research, if you have good solid evidence, and if nobody can really argue with what you're trying to say on the basis of the facts, then um, it's easier to get your message across. Um, I say easier, not that it's easy, because um, it's always challenging when you try and um, confront or challenge the status quo. So it's a matter of uh, doing your research, and these are the skills, again, that you learn in medical school, the, the way to uh, evaluate a problem, the way to gather data, the way to analyze it, uh, and those kind of skills are, are invaluable, uh, no matter what the cause is that you're, you're advocating for. If you have solid data which, uh, which can withstand uh, the critique of peer review or, or uh, opposing views, then um, I think um, you can sort of push the envelope further and further. You have also briefly mentioned about healthcare being a three-legged stool in terms of efficiency, equity and excellence. How do we improve in each aspect? Okay, the idea that of the so-called Iron Triangle in healthcare actually was first uh, uh, written, I think, by the Princeton uh, healthcare economist, Louis Reinhardt, where he pointed out that you cannot have all three. You either have uh, efficiency and equity without excellence, or you have efficiency and uh, excellence without equity. Um, in Singaporean terms, is uh, there's no such thing as cheaper, better, and faster. You're either cheaper and better, or you're cheaper and faster, but you're not better. So then what is your idea of an ideal healthcare system? Well, I think an ideal healthcare system would be a single-payer healthcare system, where there's a national health insurance system, 
where, where there is a mandatory health insurance which covers uh, a basic package of healthcare, and on top of that, there's um, employer-funded uh, insurance. So it's an insurance-based system rather than a, a national health system in like in the UK where, where everybody uh, is dependent on the taxpayer. So there is a certain amount of contribution and there's uh, risk pooling, but this is really complicated and it would take an entire hour to go into in detail. Do you think the extent to which current medical professionals are involved in advocacy work is sufficient? Well, I think there are many Singaporean uh, medical professionals, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals who are involved in in many uh, parts of civil society and advocacy. Uh, obviously, it could be more. Um, and I think the factors that contribute to that uh, include... Uh, the fear factor, where people are afraid that you know that you'll be labeled as a troublemaker and that you will have uh, no opportunity to move forward. Uh, there's also the time factor, where people are, are so busy trying to um, keep up with their their routines or the exam for the young people with the postgraduate exams and with uh, you know the, the the brutal call schedules and things like that. Um, but you know, if if people want to do something, they can. And I think that there are numerous examples. As the future generation of medical professionals, how do we then ensure that we are properly engaged in our civil society, regardless of where we choose to work at? You know, before anyone gets into medical school, they have to write this personal statement, and then they have to put out their their CV and their portfolio. And it's amazing. You know, you look at the portfolios of these JC students, and they're just so full of community service, and charity, and and all the things that they do. And the, the personal statements are so full of passion. And then they start M1 and it all disappears. And I wonder, where did it go to? So, uh, so frankly, I think what has to happen is, um, you know, the students have to rediscover some of the things that they they at least said that they did in JC days and uh, not just to, for the purposes of getting into medical school. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, amongst all the different things that they did, when I interview these students, very often one or two things will stand out uh, as things that they actually had a personal interest in. And I always ask them, you know, it has to be something that you enjoy doing. You know, if you enjoy working with children or you enjoy, you know, working with nature or, or, or whatever it is, then, you know, you need to keep doing that. And, and you can do that for the rest of your life. You see. And it doesn't matter what you're doing in your day job. Um, and, and slowly you get involved, you meet other like-minded people from different walks of life and, uh, and you can make a difference in society. How can we overcome class and cultural gaps to better provide healthcare for the public we serve, especially so in this pandemic? You know, I think it has to um, involve uh, empathy, and empathy not just in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. So, uh, as I mentioned, when we had to do the social medicine cases in the medicine posting uh, 30 years ago, having to actually visit the patient and get a sense of, of how they lived and the conditions in which they lived. Uh, if you talk about this pandemic, you know, maybe we have the medical students stay in a migrant worker dorm for, for a week without being allowed to go out except to class in, a, in the back of a lorry. You know, I think that would be a life-changing experience for, for many of our medical students. You know, before I got into medical school, um, the Ministry of Health had put this vocational assessment scheme in place because there were so many of us applying for medical school and the perception was that all of us came from very privileged backgrounds and we had no idea what it was like to be a doctor or junior doctor in the system. So we had to spend four weeks uh, being supervised by nurses 
um, if we had a, if we were shortlisted for for the medical school interviews. And because the stakes were so high, uh, if you got a bad report from a nurse, then that would go into your portfolio for the medical school admission. So it was crazy. You see these uh, top JC students fighting over who could clean a bedpan first. And, uh, uh, and I think it got to the extreme extent, so they, they scrapped the scheme. But it was a really good experience because we were actually supervised not just by the ward sisters, but by the assistant nurses. So we had to clean up after the patients. We, they deliberately made us uh, do things like take uh, patients who are confused down for x-rays and you know, uh, um, all the very unpleasant tasks in the, in the ward. Uh, and we had to do that for four weeks. We even had to do night duties where we had to stay overnight and uh, without a place to, to, to sleep. Uh, they were trying to expose us to the reality of medical school. Well, you have always had a strong voice with regards to the challenges Singaporeans are facing. Have you ever doubted the impact that you're making? All the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, I'm fortunate in that uh, I've had many opportunities and I've been very privileged in, uh, in the way uh, people have, been, have helped me out. Um, partly because of who my parents are and, and uh, where I've been in, in Singapore society. Um, but when it comes to making an impact, uh, I frankly uh, have no way of, uh, of knowing whether there's going to be a long-term impact. So, so that's been my goal, to actually um, build up uh, a group of young uh, physicians uh, who, who share certain values and, and who are prepared to, um, to, to step outside of their comfort zones to, to try and help make Singapore a better place. So as medical students, we conduct annual or biannual overseas CIP programs. Do you think these trips help in pushing for more advocacy among students? And what is your general opinion about them? To be honest, I generally have a very low opinion of uh, um, annual or biannual overseas CIP trips. Uh, and it's partly because um, I've been uh, in institutions where they've been at the receiving end and they kind of uh, uh, dread these uh, overseas medical student trips because they have to entertain them, they have to disrupt their schedules, they have certain things that these overseas medical students want to do or see. They have the potential to be quite disruptive. So the most successful uh, overseas CIP trips are when you keep going back to the same place, you build a relationship with the institution or the organization, and you do what they want you to do. You need to do something specific. So, so I think um, the CIP trips, uh, they have the potential to do a lot of harm, but they also have the potential to do good. Uh, and I think um, they have to be approached with uh, humility as an opportunity to learn from the uh, organizations overseas. So, you know, I guess um, if you ask me for final thoughts, uh, I'm going to say that, you know, it's a tremendous privilege to be a, a medical student in Singapore. You know, you're, you're the heir to one of the oldest medical schools in, uh, in Asia. Uh, it's a medical school which has produced some really amazing uh, luminaries. You've had individuals like uh, the whole range from Dr. Mahathir to uh, Dr. Ang Sui Chai, who's a, who's a legend in the Middle East. And... Uh, you know, you go to an HDB block, a rental block, and you tell them you're from NUS and you're doing a community health project, people will listen to you because you have the credibility of the, the medical school. So it's a tremendous opportunity, but at the same time, it's a tremendous responsibility, see, because this medical school is, uh, is funded by the taxpayers of Singapore. 
when I was in medical school, um, what they did was they, they made us go through this ritual. We had to go to the bursar's office on level five and collect a check for $75,000 or something or however much it was. Um, and then we had to go down to the third floor and pay it in. And this was to make us understand that our fees were subsidized <laughs> to the extent we, you know, at that time we only paid like $1,000, but the rest of it was considered part of the tuition grant. So there is a, a huge responsibility that we have as students or as faculty in a, in a state medical school. So lots of opportunities, lots of responsibilities, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun.